Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. My name is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today on Weird House Cinema, we're going to be talking about Carl Zeman's 1958 science fiction adventure film, Invention for Destruction, uh, which is a loose adaptation of the works of Jules Verne rendered in, I would say, one of the most astonishing and wonderful visual animation styles I've ever seen. Yeah, this film is absolutely gorgeous, especially if you see it in the restored form. And uh, I'll say it again, but if you are inspired to go seek out this work after this episode, uh, or you haven't seen it in many, many years, do yourself a favor, watch it in the best quality possible. The um, I think it's like about a 2018 or 17 restoration is absolutely amazing. Uh, and this is the one you should watch. So I first became aware of this filmmaker when my friend Ben uh, came over to show me another movie of his, a later one, his adaptation of the Baron Munkosen story, which is uh, also wonderful. But while that one is more fantasy, this one is more firmly science fiction. And I think it's very interesting how the, uh, the, the style of this movie interacts with the science fiction content. Because I think you could argue that many decades before anybody actually said this word or before this concept existed, this movie is steampunk. Yeah, yeah. It has a very strong uh, flavor of steampunk to it. It is this um, unreal future, this uh, sort of, uh, you could, I guess you could call it like an alternate timeline future of where technology, mm, well, I'm not going to say it might have gone there, but this is the future based on some futurist optimism of a previous age. But also, this is a thing. Rob, I don't know if you had the same experience. I had a hard time 
forcing myself to remember that this movie was actually made in 1958. So this movie came out after Attack of the Crab Monsters. This was released the same year as Fiend Without a Face, because to me, it so convincingly evoked the world of uh, sort of uh, techno-futurist optimism in, say, 1870, that I actually kept slipping into a, a mindset of, like, I'm watching a film from 1870, which, of course, is impossible. Yeah, it has a kind of timeless feel to it. And it's crazy to, to look at this film, which, again, is based on some of the works of Jules Verne, has a giant cephalopod in it, uh, again, from 1958, and then compare it to Disney's 1954 Jules Verne adaptation of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which, granted, these are two very different films from very different film environments. One's in color, one is in black and white. But yeah, this film seems to be coming from a time all its own, or it just feels timeless. It, it doesn't feel uh, shackled to the late 1950s uh, by, by any stretch. Yeah, yeah. And not to uh, put down the Disney 20,000 Leagues. Oh, no. Because, of course, yeah, Kirk Douglas is Ned Land, uh, Peter Lorre, and uh, James Mason is Captain Nemo. What a cast. Mm -hmm. But also, it, it has some great special effects, too. So I, I don't want to put it down too much. But it does feel like a film made in the 1950s, and it feels like a product of the 1950s. Invention for Destruction is from a past and a future that never existed. Yeah. It's unlike anything I think we've really watched on the show before. Uh, because, I mean, certainly it is an adventure tale. It's a science fiction tale. We've watched plenty of those. It, like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea uh, and, and various films that we've watched for Weird House Cinema, it's very much a special effects spectacle in which pretty much every shot in the film includes some manner of special effect. Yes, I totally agree with that. And I think one of the real unique pleasures of this movie, but maybe more of, uh, of Carl Zeman's filmmaking in general, is that the special effects are applied not only to spectacular scenes and moments. You know, it's not mm -hmm. just when there's like a, a great explosion or when there's a fantastic machine on screen. There are beautiful visual effects for just like a room with a staircase and a table or like a man sitting in a shack that is dilapidated and a bird flying through the air. Like the special effects are applied to you might say, not very special content of the narrative. And in applying them that way, they kind of bring mundane details to a kind of weird and surreal life. Yeah. Um, I thought a really great point on all of this was uh, was brought up by British filmmaker and puppeteer John Stevenson, who does a little intro on the excellent second-run Blu-ray release of the restored film that, that I watched, that I actually I rented from Videodrome here in Atlanta. They have a great, um, a great uh, selection of, of Carl Zeman's films. Uh, but anyway, in this little, uh, little bit, Stevenson points out that while plenty of other special effects films of the era even were great and required a, a willful suspension of disbelief, Invention for Destruction embraced stylish artificiality. Yes. Uh, every shot in the film is not only a product of special effects, but of handcrafted special effects, artifacts brought together to create this singular vision that, again, is not, it, it's not about... Um, tricking you into thinking this is real. Um, it's, uh, it's, it creates its own artificial world that you buy into. You know, this is funny in how it connects to a conversation we had on last week's episode about Jason X, about special effects. For me personally, and I think for a lot of other film fans too, 
realism is not the only measure of of what makes a special effect good. It's it's not just good if it looks convincingly like the camera has captured a real instance of what is supposed to be happening in the narrative, be that actually a spaceship flying through the air or actually a submarine fighting a giant octopus or something. There's a quality that you can seek beyond realism, which is, uh, you know, kind of um, pleasing artistic integrity. It's something kind of close to realism in that there's that integrity element, like the, the effects have to all kind of work together and they have to believe in their own magic in a way, but they don't have to necessarily look real. They just have to look right. Yeah, weirdly, a film that comes to mind that really has nothing in common with it. Uh, in in so many ways, except for this commitment to a stylish artificiality, would be the um, what the, the the Rodriguez adaptation of the Sin City comic books. Okay. Not a not a film I'm in a hurry to watch again right now. I feel like it's <laughs> yeah. kind of a kind of a violent, nasty film in many respects, but it does really commit to a, an, an artificial film world that you you buy into that that uh, that doesn't feel like a distraction but an enhancement i know exactly what you mean and i see why you would compare it to invention for destruction not again they they don't they're not aesthetically similar in any way no. but what they have in common is a a sort of total commitment to deep integration of like animation and various types of special effects with the live actors in a way that uh, that you you sort of stop seeing as special effects and it just becomes this other world. This is just a different type of world. There's our world where it's all 3D objects and live actors. And then there's this other type of world where there are actors who ride inside hand-drawn locomotives and like uh, animated birds fly around between the blades of a propeller in an airship. Yeah, it's um, I mean, this is a film you, re- you really just you need to watch it. Um, <laughs> uh, we can talk about it all day, but but you need to see it to understand what we're talking about here, because some of the some of the aspects of it are, are, are kind of it's kind of hard to, to understand how they they work if we're just describing it, because, yeah, you have this wonderful combination of live action performances by human actors, these kind of 2D sets and environments. Um, stop motion animation, more traditional 2D animation. Um, but you never feel like it's cobbled together as you might feel with special films like, say, uh, you know, so some of the various films that poorly integrate practical and digital effects, or even films that have, say, stop motion monster scenes mixed with a costume monster effect, and something feels off about it. Yes, totally. So it has all these different um, film styles and effect styles coming together within each frame, but it has this deep blended integrity. They are all parts of a machine working together, and that machine is cranking. And there are other movies like this, but um, a lot of the other movies that, that combine these different effect styles, often I think the bar is realism. I don't want to get ahead of you, Rob, but I think you were going to invoke the example of Jurassic Park, which I think is a great example of a film that effectively combines different effect styles uh, uh, into this integrated whole, and it works very well. But what they're going for is trying to create the impression of a real dinosaur. And that's not what Zaman's doing, but Mm -hmm. he's doing something at least equally beautiful, probably much more beautiful, I think. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, this film embraces the artificiality in a way that Jurassic Park didn't. And Jurassic Park's effects are amazing in that they don't. It's just a totally different approach to how you're presenting a world on the screen. Yeah, like well, one thing I was also I also kept thinking about watching this film is the performances and the plot are, again, science fictional. Uh, 
but also pretty straightforward. There's nothing really dreamlike about the plot uh, of the film for the most part, but the visual language of the film really does feel like the etchings in a printed book have been brought to life through magic or that we've partially entered uh, a world through the looking glass, you know? Much about the movie makes you kind of ask, what reality is this? And there are, there are elements actually other than the visuals I'll, I'll refer to in a minute. Like, for example, the movie's relationship to its literary subject matter kept making me think, like, what is reality here? But we'll save that question for when we talk about Jules Verne. All right. Well, what would you uh, what would you say the elevator pitch is for this uh, film, Joe? Oh, I didn't write one ahead of time, but how about a brilliant but absent-minded scientist is on the verge of creating the world's most powerful weapon, though he's not very concerned with its practical uses. <laughs> um, <laughs> he is kidnapped by a pirate king, and his work will be put to questionable ends. How will he and his lowly assistant deal with this situation? Yeah, I think that pretty much captures it. It's a, it's a, it's a film full of flying machines, other spectacular uh, vessels of the ocean, um, super science, and all of it like a 19th century illustrated Jules Verne novel just brought to stunning life. That's another thing that I've read, uh, Robin. I, I don't know how much uh, the introduction by the puppeteer addressed this, but one thing I saw alleged was that the animation style of Invention for Destruction was especially geared toward essentially making the hand-drawn engravings and illustrations that accompanied Jules Verne novels of the 19th century, it, like making those into a, a film texture. Yeah, that's my understanding. Uh, they, uh, there, there's a bit on this uh, Blu-ray that I was watching uh, that had uh, some interview segments with his daughter, uh, Zayman's daughter, and she mentioned, you know, his inspiration uh, being these uh, the, these various illustrated uh, Jules Verne books that he would just you know pour over and would just be uh, totally enraptured by. And and a lot of that is is visible in the the use of lines, so that uh, there'll be a lot of say horizontal lines in a given scene. Mm -hmm. um, also uh, in the costumes, there will be a lot of horizontal or vertical lines. Uh, all of this helping to create this idea of wood grains uh, in the, uh, uh, the the illustration. And uh, Zayman's daughter also mentions like helping her father on the uh, on the production. Uh, you know, she was young at the time, but he's like, "Hey, do you want to come in and draw lines on costumes?" and sets. Oh. <laughs> and so there's apparently a great deal of that. Wonderful. Oh, that's so sweet. Oh, oh one thing we should also point out um, before we move on is I, I really, we've done, is this our third Czech or Czechoslovak movie on, on Weird House? It is. So far, we've uh, done 1970's Fruit of Paradise. That was the Vera Chitilova movie. Yeah, yeah. And there'll be a connection to that in this film. Uh, and then also, uh, while you were out on parental leave, uh, Seth and I talked about Jean Sankmeyer's Alice from 1988. Awesome. Yeah, so it's, uh, and, and we're probably not done. It's possible that we'll do another Czech film next week. I have to watch it on my own to, to, to see how it'll fit. But uh, yeah, I mean, Czech cinema is a rich well to draw from. It's not a, a cinematic world that I feel as versed in as other things like, you know, Spanish horror or Italian uh, Jalo cinema and so forth, or certainly American mm -hmm. British uh, film. But uh, yeah, there's just so much there and, and so much that is new to me. If only one of these beautiful weirdo Czech directors could have made a movie with Paul Nashi in it, like a <laughs> Paul Nashi werewolf film directed by Carl Zaman or Vera Chitilova. 
Mm, well, I, it, let's keep that in mind because I'm I'm curious what this film I'm going to check out uh, feels like. Uh, you know, it, it, the one I'm going to look at has some sort of gothic horror elements to it. All right, well, let's go ahead and hear the English language trailer for this film. Uh, this is a good place as any to mention that this film was released in America as the fabulous world of Jules Verne. Hmm. And uh, so this is the this is the trailer for it. And I think this will work better for our English language listeners because you'll get to hear this um, old timey narration talking up uh, the worlds of Jules Verne brought to life on the screen. From the fantastic Jules Verne, creator of Around the World in 80 Days, comes now the most fabulous adventure on, over, or under the earth. The first motion picture produced in the magic image miracle of Mistimation. Wonders never before seen will unfold before your startled eyes. Fantastic aircraft fly the skies. Electronic machines, an incredible sea battle. in the mouth of a blazing volcano. Underwater escape from Terror Island. world of Jules Verne brings you the master storyteller of our time with wonders to delight and excite and stir your imagination. The fabulous world of Jules Verne. Shoot them down, the traitors. Go on, shoot them down. All right. Before we jump in uh, further, just remind everyone, yeah, if you want to watch this film for yourself, and we highly recommend you do, the second run Blu-ray edition is amazing. That's the one I, I watched it on. But you can also stream it via the Criterion channel if you subscribe to that service or want to do a, uh, like, a, you know, the free intro month deal on that. Um, again, if you do watch it, make sure that it's, uh, I believe, the 2018 4K restoration because it is gorgeous. There is also some uh, a little extra on the disc I watched that showed them restoring it, showing like all the various uh, things they had to do to clean it up and just get it, get the, the 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 film looking just so splendid. The restoration does look wonderful. Like the the uh, the lines are so crisp. You know, it is like a Durer's copper pen had just left the page or the woodblock. It's it's amazing. Yeah, and the extras, John Stevenson, the British filmmaker and puppeteer, I believe he was one of the directors on the first Kung Fu Panda film, uh, for example. He has this whole bit talking about how, as a child, he glimpsed part of this film on British television, I don't know, like some sort of kids morning show or something, and just needed to see it. And even at one point, I believe as a child, like wrote to the um, the, the Czech embassy to see if he could get a copy. Yeah. And then for the longest, apparently it was it was kind of hard to get a, a, a copy of it. Like he's talking about, uh, I think a lot of 
film fans uh, who were seeking out films and the you know the, the in the 90s and the early 2000s have this experience where you're having to turn to things like um uh, you know, d- uh, like dubbed copies, and uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a copy of a disc from another region. He says at one point um, there was a Japanese edition that came out with a number of Zayman's films in it, but it was just tremendously expensive. But he had to buy it, so he spent like all of his available funds getting it. And so, you know, finally building up to the the day when not only is the film widely available, but it's widely available in in just splendid restored quality. That is something we don't often stop to appreciate uh, in, in the, the present day, like how, how fortunate we are that a lot of these great old films are available now and that, that they're so much easier to see than they used to be and in often beautifully restored form. That's the, the painstaking work of uh, many experts. Yeah. Even films that maybe like, I don't know if you could make an argument that maybe assignment terror didn't need to be <laughs> so splendidly restored, but, but they did it and, and thank goodness they did. Oh, well, why would you say it didn't need? Of course it does. That's history. <laughs> I don't know. I guess some films, uh, you know, some films, I guess you could make an argument for like the, the grittiness of the original medium can sort of add to the experience or be part of the nostalgia for a given film. I've also seen effects uh, people discuss how um, older mediums allowed them to sort of cover up the limitations of their effects at times. Yeah. You know, and, 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 uh, you know, stuff that might've worked on, on VHS suddenly, Oh, they, now they have it out on DVD or Blu-ray and you can really see the scenes. You were never meant to see this wire effect in 4k. It worked great on a, on a grainy VHS. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I understand they've had to go back and, and do some of that even on productions like uh, Dark Crystal and Labyrinth. They're just some, you know, the, the, the quality that we have now wasn't necessarily um, something they were taking into account. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. 
brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. All right, well, let's get into the the people here. Uh, So Carl Zaman. Uh, the director also has adaptation and scenario credits, production design credits, and special effects credits. Though the, the uh, other individuals working with him on the special effects, there's a whole crew here. Uh, he lived 1910 through 1989. Highly influential Czech filmmaker and animator, best remembered for his combination of animation and live action. Though I believe there there are films and short works of his that are more purely animation. Uh, but this is a great example of one that utilizes multiple forms of animation and live performances. You'll find many, many filmmakers that cite him as an influence, and they include the likes of Jan Svankmeyer himself, uh, Tim Burton, Terry Gilliam, which seems like a no-brainer when you think about Terry Gilliam's uh, uh, use of animation, yeah. especially during the Monty Python years. Absolutely. I see huge uh, Zaman DNA in, in Terry Gilliam work. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Stevenson, obviously. Uh, Wes Anderson as well. And I think that's very telling because even as I was watching the film uh, before I, I knew that, that Wes Anderson uh, you know, had, had, had said this before, I think of the life aquatic. Yes. And I think of the way that the um, Belafonte, the, 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 the vessel there, the way it's presented um, at times takes on this kind of embraced artificiality. Yeah, totally. And the sea life as well, I think, um, if memory serves. It's been a little bit since I've seen that, but that, of course, is a wonderful film. Oh, yeah. There's some invention for destruction e sharks, I think. Is, yeah. It's yeah. been a long time, but yeah. So Zaman produced a number of short films over the years, multiple full-length pictures, most of which are at least loosely sci-fi or fantasy in genre. Uh, prior to filmmaking, he worked in advertising and poster design. His films include... The Treasure of Bird Island, Journey to Prehistory, Baron Munchausen, A Jester's Tale, The Stolen Airship, which is another Jules Verne uh, picture, kind of a mashup of tales, mm-hmm. um, On the Comet, which is a Jules Verne adaptation, Tales of a Thousand and One Nights, Crabbit, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, That's well, that one I believe is fully animated, and The Tale of John and Mary. Mm. Those are, of course, all um, English translated titles. The, the original titles are all um, Czech titles. I feel like I'm going to have to eventually see all of those. 
all those sound very interesting. Um, and I believe his, I was reading, uh, when it comes to awards and granted awards, especially, you know, um, uh, you know, Western awards are not, uh, uh, not the be all and end all to all this, but, uh, his short from 1946, I believe a Christmas story or Vanancy sin, uh, this one, uh, best short film at the Cannes film festival. Hmm. Oh, and if you find yourself in Prague, there is a museum dedicated to his work, uh, the Museum Carla Zemana, I believe. So if you if you uh, if you live in Prague or are visiting Prague or have visited Prague and have gone to this museum, definitely write in and tell us all about it. Now, we've focused a lot on the uh, on the effects and the visual style of the movie, but there's also I think a lot of interesting stuff to say about the narrative content of the film. And one thing here is that while there is one major work that I think you could say this is most adapted from, uh, and that's a Jules Verne novel called Facing the Flag. In other ways, it's a very much a mashup. It's just sort of a, uh, it, you know, it's a blender smoothie full of 19th century science fiction ideas, primarily from Jules Verne. Yeah, Jules Verne lived 1828 through 1905, the legendary French novelist, poet, and playwright. Uh, some have, even you know, today will say, oh, well, he was kind of a futuristic prophet. You know, he, he described these various technological achievements and, and uses that would come to fruition. Uh, they were even saying this during Verne's own lifetime, and, and he tended to deny such praise and saying, oh, it's just coincidence. And, uh, you know, it is probably a bit over the top, but at the same time, you know, he, he did in some ways seem to see further than uh, than many uh, in trying to imagine how humans would use technology. Um, his science fiction has a has this wonderful charm to it, though it's it, it can be a bit naive and optimistic in some ways, but also very aware of the dark potential for human technology. Yes, both sides are there. I mean, he he often has. Um like villains or anti-heroes uh, sort of searching after a powerfully destructive piece of technology. But also, I would say a very generally kind of enthusiastic, even exuberant, positive vision of human progress. Yeah, I think that's a good way of summing it up. Among his most famous and frequently adapted works were uh, Around the World in 80 Days, Journey to the Center of the Earth, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, The Mysterious Island, and From Earth to the Moon. Uh, yeah, given the proximity of his work and popularity to the birth of cinema, adaptations of his work are, are numerous and are, are frequently kind of important benchmarks in the history of cinema, especially when you look back to 1902's A Trip to the Moon. Uh, we mm -hmm. already mentioned 54's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. There's also 1956 Around the World in 80 Days. They're still making Jules Verne adaptations, uh, but I, I was hard-pressed to pinpoint one that felt important somehow. I fully support the artistic choice in Voyage Don La Lune to change the Baltimore Gun Club in Jules Verne's novel into a bunch of guys in wizard robes. <laughs> so um, in terms of the, you know, the, the final script we see here, the final uh, vision on the screen, um, of course, Zayman himself uh, has some credit. Um, there's also a, a Czech poet and writer by the name of uh, Frantisek Kruven, who lived 1910 through 1971, that has a scenario credit. Uh, at least uh, this is via IMDb. And among his works are Romance for Flugelhorn, uh, which is a 1961 epic poem, which was also adapted for film in 1967. He wrote the screenplay for 78's Beauty and the Beast, a mm. Czech film based on his own play, I believe. Uh, this was a stunning-looking gothic horror film directed by Juraj Herz. 
the acclaimed director of 1969's The Cremator, a dark comedy horror film that's apparently very well regarded. This adaptation of Beauty and the Beast, you were sharing some stuff from this with me, and this this could be on our radar for the future. Yeah, yeah, I need to, I need to check it out, but it looks very interesting. There are a couple of other credits, and I couldn't find out much about them, but uh, Milan Vacha, dates unknown, at least were not visible to me when I was looking around, uh, credited on this, but not much else was turning up. And also a screenwriter by the name of Giri uh, Bradeca, who lived 1917 through 1982, is also credited on some film databases, but not IMDb. So I'm not sure, but I'm going to list their names anyway. All right. Should we talk about the cast? How do you want to start with uh, old Lubor Tokosh? Yeah, playing Simon Hart, our um, our hero of the piece. Uh, he lived nineteen twenty three through two thousand and three. Czech actor, active in TV and film from the late forties to the early two thousands. His more famous work, certainly taking in to account global recognition of Czech films, uh, are, are probably his films, uh, uh, 1970s um, Ucho, The Ear, which uh, uh, I believe is a surveillance thriller about people who uh, suddenly find their home bugged by uh, presumably the state, mm. uh, 1970s Witch Hammer, and 1972's The Girl on the Broomstick. Uh, but I'm likely missing something major here, especially when it comes to the intended audience. So uh, if you have more experience than we do with Czech cinema and Czech television and so forth, write in. Uh, we would love uh, to hear from you. But uh, yeah, he's he's quite good in this. He has very expressive eyes. Lubor Tokosh here has a very dark, very like tightly sculpted strap-like beard that follows his jawline and a, and a similar mm-hmm. kind of mustache. And I almost wonder if that look is selected because of the high contrast, like uh, beard color and shape going well with the animation style, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I believe that there are, yeah, there are characters like, uh, was it, is it Yana? Uh, yeah. The, uh, the, the sort of the love interest of the piece. Uh, she was specifically selected because she looked like she would fit into one of these old illustrations. She had a kind of naive look to her. She looks, I think, that in the uh, materials about the, the film I was looking at on the disc, uh, she looked like she was, quote, born yesterday, you know, so, and that she looked good in period piece. Uh, uh, garb. So yeah, it was all about like what will look good in the in the the overall piece, not so much like what is this individual's uh, acting prowess. Though not to take away from the actors, no. I, I thought all of the actors in the movie did well. Another actor who I think like like these two we were just talking about seems clearly chosen for a sort of look that works well with the animation is the pirate captain, Captain Slade. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, this is interesting because this character is played by Frantisik Sliger. Born 1894, died 1971, and I was mostly just amused that he also played a pirate captain in Zayman's 1962 film, The Fabulous Baron Munchausen. <laughs> mm-hmm. Fun fact, the other pirate players that pop up in the piece is like pirate crew. Uh-huh. Apparently, Zayman just went down to the local retirement home and recruited a bunch of guys who had like rugged looking faces. He's like, this is what I need. Then get, get these rugged mugs into the studio. The retirement home pirates. How can you not love this? Yeah. <laughs> now, we mentioned the professor that's going to be a central part of the plot. Professor Roach? Roach? Uh, well, okay. Th- we should raise here. I don't know if we're going to consistently pronounce the characters' names the same way they are pronounced in the movie. So, for example, Simon Hart, the the hero, 
uh, I think in the Czech version they call him like Shimon Hart or something. Mm. Uh, so we're probably we're not going to manage that while we're talking about the movie. We, we will have some anglicized name pronunciation. So the professor is named R R O C H. I think they call him Roke maybe in in mm. their pronunciation, but we can say Roach. Yeah, and and also, what language did you watch? I watched the English dub. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so, I, so we may we may have some differences yeah. there as well. I watched it in the original with subtitles. Okay. Well, anyway, this particular professor character played by Arnost Navratil, who lived 1926 through 1984, a Czech actor. Uh, his other films include Great Solitude from 1960, but I was also amused that he's actually younger uh, than Lubor, <laughs> the actor, uh, yeah, the actor Lubor. Yeah, his, uh, if the dates are correct, um, he's actually three years younger. Wow. I would not have uh, expected that. Yeah, the magic of cinema. Mm-hmm. We also have an evil count in this mm. uh, in this film. Always good to have an evil count scheming away. Yep, that's uh, Count Artigas, played by Miroslav Holub. Yep, lived 1915 through 1999. Uh, Czech actor, his other credits include 1987's Frankenstein's Aunt and Carl Zeman's 1970 film On the Comet. Uh, he was also an enemy general in Zeman's 1962 film, The Fabulous Baron Munchausen. So, you know, very much, he seemed to have a, a crew that he turned to for a lot of these films. Now, we often mention the music, and Rob, even though I think this is this is not uh, a, an electronic score like you typically love the most, I bet you love the music in this movie because it is incredibly appropriate to the narrative. We get a lot of uh, kind of like daunting horns, but then also a jaunty harpsichord. Yeah, yeah. I know. I love the music in this, in part because there are some great stretches where you have either organ or even possibly electronic organ. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. But it's an organ that sounds electronic enough for me anyway. And uh, and then a lot of scenes where characters are, uh, they're, they're like uh, either uh, weaving their way through some sort of machine-filled room or chamber, or they're hanging out in a laboratory, and we get a lot of sort of droney electronic ambience going on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the music for this film is from Zednik Liska, who lived 1922 through 1983, noted Czech composer uh, and something of an electronic music pioneer, I'm to understand, that was active from the 1950s through the early 1980s and is especially noted for his work in Czech New Wave and the early films of stop-motion legend John Svenkmeyer. Uh, he scored 1970s Fruit of Paradise, so we have discussed his work previously on the show. Oh, wow. The Fruit of Paradise had awesome music. Mm-hmm. You remember the uh, the scene at the beginning that retells the Garden of Eden story sort of in short before the, the longer, more surreal version. And then it's got those choirs and the, like, the, yeah. the psychedelic uh, vision. Yeah, very ethereal. Yeah. Liska also scored 1969's The Cremator, which uh, I have not seen, but again, uh, it it factors into a a couple of different filmographies here and is highly regarded. Okay, you want to talk about the plot? Yeah. um, uh, Again, you watched the original Czech version with subtitles. I watched the English dub, which was the U.S. release version of the picture and uh, the 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 dub is a lot of fun this is this is a film where i didn't i don't feel particularly guilty using a an english language dub because it's it's ultimately more about the visual experience and this Mm -hmm. way i'm not reading anything on the screen instead i'm looking at these like weird fish um but uh two major differences in the u.s is that it's promoted as using the new motion picture technique mistymation which um I, I talked about this briefly with Seth before that, like, what is this weird, um, 
uh, American and possibly British aversion to saying stop motion. Instead, mm. everything has to have some sort of weird name like uh, claymation and so forth. Yeah, that's funny. Um, also, the, the most noticeable difference, though, is the U.S. version has an extended intro by American radio and television broadcaster Hugh Downs, who <laughs> lived 1921 through 2020. Uh, Leonard Malton described this introduction as, quote, pointless. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, kind of like I I went back and, and looked at the uh, the original Czech version to see how it started. And, yeah, this is kind of like a bloated intro from Hugh Downs where he's he's kind of like, you know, he's in this like weird living room and he's like saying, hey, we're, we're going to watch a, this film today. And it's uh, you know, it's about uh, the how brilliant Jules Verne was. And then he tells you a little bit about how Jules Verne was brilliant, essentially a prophet of technology in the future, and sort of slowly eases you into the film, almost like you needed, you know, some sort of appetizer or intro, or you needed permission from Hugh Downs to enjoy the movie. Are, are there any, like, animated uh, fish swimming around his head or, like, an octopus no. grabbing his leg? No, he has some, like, model airplanes and rockets on a table behind him. Okay. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's almost yeah, yeah. I I see what you're saying. It's almost like you wonder at the time for American audiences to accept something this kind of like visually unusual. Did they have to say, okay, now we're going to sit you down with a boring man in a kind of boring environment to tell you that it's okay to watch what follows? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's um. <laughs> You know, this is this is right before or around the same time that the Twilight Zone came out. So, you know, maybe there's certain uh, there's certain comparisons to be made there, except uh, Hugh Downs is, is, is there's nothing creepy about the way he's presenting it. He's very he's very square in his presentation of a film that is anything but square. A retirement home pirate and a fish that turns into a butterfly. It couldn't happen, but it could in Jules Verne. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't know. It's fun, but you can sort of take it or leave it, depending on which version of the film you watch. And eventually you can end up in the same place. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. 
And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Well, so in the opening credits, we see uh, an acknowledgement that this is what uh, the, the the subtitles translate as freely adapted from the writings of Jules Verne. And I think that's a good way to put it, because there is one major novel that this plot comes from, but it's pulling in stuff from all over the place. And I think they give you a, a taste of the buffet of imagery to come because the opening credits have kind of uh, line drawings in relief behind them where you see hints of, wait a minute, what is that? Is that a bullet-shaped capsule flying through the stars toward the moon? Is this lightning striking a castle on a mountaintop? You got a hot air balloon, erupting volcano, a ship shooting out laser beams or beams of some kind. Yeah, it pretty much just establishes that we are in a strange Jules Verne version of what the future or the past could have consisted of. And then we open on a shot of an antique office that's lined with a sort of fleur-de-lis-esque wallpaper, a small lamp, an ink pot, and a stack of books, which all bear the name Jules Verne on the spine of the books. And we get some voiceover narration. It says, Good evening, friends. Come closer. I shall tell you about the greatest adventure of my life. And we zoom in on a notebook. It says, This is my journal. Everything I experienced I confided to its pages. Forgive me, I haven't introduced myself. I am Mr. Simon Hart. And he says, I lived at a time of such hope, the dream of human progress. And here we see an illustration that uh, may be a kind of airship. He says, we could think of nothing else, my friends and I, Robor the Conqueror, Barbican, Captain Nemo. Uh, and then we see all kinds of illustrations, including one of like sea monsters or prehistoric marine reptiles biting mm. each other's necks. And there's an ambiguity here when he says, we could think of nothing else, my friends and I, Robor the Conqueror, Barbican, Captain Nemo. Because all these names he lists are Jules Verne characters. And... 
it's not clear from what he's saying whether he he's saying those were his friends who couldn't think of anything other than human progress or if his friends couldn't think of anything other than human progress and the examples of human progress he's listing are Rober the Conqueror, Barbican, and Captain Nemo, both of which would make sense as as interpretations of that sentence. And both are kind of supported by the context. Like, he's looking at books that say Jules Verne on them, and these are Jules Verne characters. So they're like characters he's referring to within the narrative. But then he also talks about them as if they are real people. So there's a very kind of interesting, ambiguous superposition of the fictional world of Jules Verne and the supposed reality of this movie's narrative uh, that that are like existing at the same time. There, Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And this is another way that this film feels not you know we've discussed how it feels like something echoing from a time before 1958 but in this it really feels like oh like something from much later like from the the 80s or perhaps the 90s yeah uh, in the way that it's 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 treating this world creation but uh, i wanted to explain these other jules verne characters he mentions just for some context so you've got uh, rober the conqueror this is the title character of a novel by jules verne it's called rober the conqueror rober is an inventor and the thing he conquers is the skies he creates a gigantic airship that is held aloft and powered by a series of propellers and air screws and rober uh He's one of Verne's kind of antisocial genius inventors. He flies around the world planting black flags on top of pyramids and the Statue of Liberty and so forth. And apparently the novel involves a bitter factional struggle within a Philadelphia aeronautics or flight club between Robor and the group that prefers dirigibles and other lighter than air aircraft. And he'll he'll sure show them that heavier than air aircraft are the way to go. And note, of course, that this was written at a time before powered flight. Hmm. So I don't know if we if we want to say techno profit or whatever, but Jules Verne often was writing several decades ahead. You know, he was writing yeah. about things that would, in some rough sense, become real technologies several decades after he was writing about them or would become more developed because he also like talks about submarines, which like at the time he published 20,000 leagues under the sea, there were sort of primitive submarines, but not anywhere near the, the kind of thing he describes in, in 20,000 leagues. Yeah. Um, so the uh, other characters he mentions, one is uh, Barbican, which is one of the main characters of uh, from the earth to the moon. And then the sequel around the moons, a sort of a story in two parts, uh, Barbican is the president of a Baltimore gun club who builds a cannon that will shoot him and two other passengers around the moon in a closed capsule, again, seemingly to prove the haters wrong. We're kind of <laughs> sensing a pattern here. There's like a like a, a gentleman's club for people interested in science and technology and human progress. And then there's like a struggle within that club. And there is a defiant inventor or, or genius in the club who's like, I'm going to show my my rivals wrong and does something amazing. But I think it's notable that the ones that follow almost that exact pattern are kind of the less notable Jules Verne novels, mm -hmm. because when you come to 20,000 Leagues and Captain Nemo, uh, th this is once again a defiant, antisocial, globetrotting genius of sorts, but with, I think, a much more complex and tragic motivation. I, I think a lot of critics would say 20,000 Leagues is 
better and more interesting than a lot of Verne's other novels in in uh, in the quality of its characters, not just for mm-hmm. the evocation of an interesting sci-tech uh, scenario, because uh, Captain Nemo is there's a lot about him that's kind of hidden under the surface. You you don't know exactly what his motivations are, but like there's the implication that he's sort of on a plot of anti-imperialist revenge after like imperial or colonial powers have destroyed his home and his family, which makes him a weirdly kind of sympathetic character, even though he sort of fills the role of a villain or antagonist in the book. And so uh, Nemo and, and 20,000 Leagues are very interesting. Yeah, I th- this is something that the, the Disney adaptation from the 50s, I think, captured quite well. And I remember thinking a lot about this as a child, watching this film and rewatching this film. It's like, yeah, you you spend a lot of time thinking about Captain Nemo. Like, obviously, he's the villain, but he's also really cool. But also, he clearly is a, a very conflicted character. And, and the other characters in the film are trying to figure him out as well. I thought it was well uh, produced in that. But I would say the Closest to a single inspiration for the plot of Invention for Destruction is the Jules Verne novel Facing the Flag, uh, which is a later novel of his, which has a very patriotic twist to it, which some have argued is is kind of a much lesser rehash of 20,000 Leagues. Like it involves a a rogue captain operating a submarine with a secret island base, uh, but he's in the case of Facing the Flag, the character is not as interesting and nuanced and, and complex as, as Captain Nemo. He's just sort of a bad guy. He's like a mean criminal. But anyway, so to come back to this whole thing where the narrator here seem, uh, seemingly is the main character in a loose adaptation of a Jules Verne novel, but describes himself as swept up in a in a wave of giddy enthusiasm for progress through science and technology that is implied it's not explicit but it's kind of implied that this is by reading Jules Verne novels mm-hmm. it's kind of like if you had a, a a superman origin story where he grew up excited about heroism because he read DC comics you know it reminds me just a little bit of time after time where HG Wells is both a character and the time machine has a physical reality though that's a little more uh, they, they, that's a little more battened down in terms of making it all um, have narrative sense to it. Yeah. But I see the comparison. You're, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that blending of the, you know, the the higher level of reality with the, with the narrative inside the book. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so uh, that's establishing the setting. And, and Simon Hart uh, narrating goes on to say, well, that was the world of our youth. And then we begin a fabulous animated sequence where... Um, so, again, to try to picture what's going on in, in the, the scenes of this movie, if you haven't seen it, there are often different layers of animation. So there will be live action and still imagery combined into a single frame to affect a total scene and then often animation going on on top of and around it. So you might have, for example, live action footage of crashing waves superimposed over hand-drawn waves and a shoreline with an animated boat filled with live actors. Yeah. Yeah. So many layers to it. And then shot to shot, things will change as well. Like in one shot, a diver may be presented as a, as a stop motion puppet. And then in the next, it's a live actor in a costume. Mm-hmm. And again, the, it's it's not a seamless transition, but it doesn't feel flawed. It feels in keeping with the the handcrafted artificiality of the picture. 
Yeah. And so the narrator says, my story proper begins on the Atlantic. What an impression that made on me. I was a passenger on the first steamship to cross the ocean, uh, which I think is funny because all these things different, differently kind of blend together. But like somehow I just find the, the steamship crossing the ocean, while it is actually in reality a, an impressive feat, it's just far less inspiring to the imagination than like a submarine or an airship. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, But anyway, uh, he says, I watched as the human spirit challenged the waves below and the empire of the air above. And here we have a a row of well-dressed passengers on the boat. They're lining the walls of the steamship, gazing out at things with spyglasses and opera binoculars. And we see an airship and a submarine to uh, match his comments there. Now, with the airship, there's sort of a dirigible frame and then a a pilot who is pedaling bicycle pedals to power a propeller. Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of things going on. It really looks like one of the seagulls flying around is going to get squashed or chopped up by the bow prop, like a seagull <laughs> salad shooter. Yeah, yeah. And I can only imagine little touches like this were intentional, in part because they're they're, they're funny. But also, uh, it made me think of something that I heard Guillermo del Toro talk about in uh, making a feature about Pinocchio, uh, his new uh, Pinocchio film, which is beautiful. Uh, but he, he made a really nice point. He said that that um, if you're filming with live a- actors and your live performances, you have the script, you have the performance of the script, and you hope for little alterations, even little mistakes, out of which uh, something special may arise. Mm. But when you're doing animation and stop motion animation or, or something like, like this picture, you know, everything is meticulously planned out. And sometimes you have to plan in the mistakes. You have to plan in things like, say, a character not closing a closet door all the way or mm. kind of fumbling a little bit when placing a, a plate on a table, because those are the things that feel real. Yes. And you have to plan for those. Yeah, yeah. So with live actors and and the three-dimensional world, imperfections that prove the reality arise naturally. But with animation, because you're going frame by frame, you have to plan them in. Yeah. And I think that's also, and this is something that I talked about with Seth on that that Alice episode, is that that's one of the charms of stop motion in general, is that there's this handcraftedness and this kind of lovable awkwardness to it where it feels real. You know, that that reminds me of another thing I wanted to say about this movie uh, to contrast it with what you would usually say about a special effects driven film. Movie critics like I can just hear in my head Siskel and Ebert saying this, uh, uh, using the phrase special effects picture almost as synonymous with a movie that is lacking in kind of uh, expressive human qualities, that it's a, a more kind of. Uh, alien, uh, you know, uh, product of a kind of plastic texture, mass manufactured in a way. And this movie is a special effects picture in every way. Like the special effects are the main character, but it is exactly the opposite. It feels lovingly handmade. It is the Mm -hmm. opposite of what you would mean when you said that about like, you know, Transformers 6 or something. Right, right. So anyway, uh, while we're watching this, the narrator goes on about giddy excitement for every new development of science and technology. And then, ah, what's this? There's another site off the side of the steamship. There is a strange iron mass, this elongated hull bobbing in the water. And then we see several men scamper into a, into a hatch on the top and close it. And then the vessel descends down into the water. And the narrator says, little did I know what role that submersible would soon play in my life. 
Uh, but suddenly we're on to something else. We're watching a train cross a giant bridge spanning a colossal canyon. And the narrator says, my journey continued over land. The iron horse knew no obstacles. And we get another ingeniously composed shot. So the locomotive is fully animated or hand-drawn. But the people peering out the windows and the conductor are live actors. I don't know exactly how this shot was accomplished, but it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And then we see our narrator is a passenger on board the train. This is that, you know, this is uh, Lubor Tokash. He's a young man with sad eyes, that that trim mustache and the dark strap-like beard along his jawbone. Uh, And uh, he's sitting in the train and there's a man with a rifle who squats down inside the train trying to, I think, shoot a bird out the train mm-hmm. window. But then he accidentally shoots through a, uh, a a passenger's newspaper that he's reading, which was very funny. Yeah, I laughed out loud and kind of exclaimed, too, because it's like, oh, my God, he just shot somebody in the face. But then, nope, the man with the newspaper lowers the newspaper and it's just a hole blasted through the newspaper and he's slightly annoyed. Uh, but you think that he's freaked out by the fact that the newspaper was shot, but then he almost seems not to have noticed that because <laughs> he was just reading a very tragic story, something about a catastrophic accident with a submersible. So I think that we're to understand that submarine that uh, that uh, uh, Simon Hart saw earlier has sunk. It was a tragic accident. Mm-hmm. And the sad man says, such a needless loss of life. Yet another invention meets its fate. Man was given legs to walk upon the earth and there he should stay. But our young protagonist, uh, he has a look, and then he folds up the newspaper, and he hands it back as if to rebuke the man. He says, fortunately, there are always those not content to merely walk. So he is fully devoted to the future, even if there are catastrophic submarine accidents. And we also get more narration and, and animation about airships. So that's uh, moving in the kind of Robor the Conqueror idea. Uh, but uh, eventually he goes on to say an era of steam and electricity has rendered obsolete the servants of yesteryear. And we see a carriage driver standing over a wrecked axle and just lamenting the fate of the carriage. But we cut from that to a steam powered horseless carriage being driven by a mustachioed gentleman with a aviator's cap, like a goggle cap. Uh, and our narrator, while riding the steam-powered truck abomination, looks at the sky and he notices an airship chugging along in the clouds. And he makes mention of his friend, Robor the Conqueror. So once again, like, what level of reality are we inhabiting here? Like, are these Jules Verne characters characters from books or are they living people? It seems kind of both. But eventually, Hart uh, arrives at the end of his long journey. He arrives at his destination, and it is a private sanatorium stashed up on a rocky cliff overlooking the sea. And as he approaches it, he passes by a man who looks like a grizzled sea captain in a large cloak who's wandering the rocks outside. And at first, this man pulls a revolver on uh, on Simon Hart as they bump into each other. But then he's just kind of like, ah, whatever. And they go on their separate ways. Uh, and the narrator asks, but who was that man? And I was thinking, you know, he kind of looks a bit like Sven Ole Thorson. Oh, yeah, yeah. But we learn here that Hart is uh, at the sanatorium to visit his mentor, the brilliant scientist Professor Roach, who, recovering from nervous exhaustion after working so long on his most recent invention, has been has been stashed away here. 
Um, and uh, so uh, let's see. Uh, Simon Hart is speaking to, the, I guess, the warden, the man who operates the sanatorium. And Hart says that uh, he and Professor Roach need money so that they can finish Professor Roach's great invention in peace. And the other man says, sometimes I wonder if no good will come of this great explosive device. You know? <laughs> um, and we're not told at this point why the professor is building a great explosive device, but you know, it's Jules Verne stuff. He just is. It's just progress. And uh, although it did not appear in the English subtitles for this movie, I don't know if they ever said it in, in the dub you watched, Rob, but in I, I was reading about Jules Verne's Facing the Flag, and allegedly in that, Roach's device is called the Fulgurator. I don't remember that term. I do remember there's a lot of talk about, like, absolute matter and and so forth. Yeah, this may be a kind of retcon with reality, but they later, when they're explaining his breakthrough, it makes it sound a lot like he's discovering uh, nuclear secrets, you know, basically Mm -hmm. nuclear power and and nuclear weapons. Yeah. Ooh, but after this, a dark and beautiful scene unfolds later that night when the, the grizzled sea captain man from the cliffs earlier, he's out by the stormy sea and there are waves crashing on the rocks. And he raises a lantern to signal at a mysterious vessel, and someone on board the vessel flashes a light to signal back. And here onto the shore come a crew of gnarly pirates. I guess these are the (laughs) retirement home pirates rowing their boats in the gloom against the heavy surf. I love the look of this scene. Now, this is not the one where they're in a submarine. That's later, I think, right? Right, right. They're all sharpening their their swords. Oh, no, no, no. This is when they're rowing their boats to get to the sanatorium. Yeah. Um, And we get a little backstory, meanwhile, between Simon Hart and Professor Roach. Uh, They're talking about his work, and Roach says, I'm a scientist. My interest lies in chemical reactions, not their practical applications. (laughs) And uh, this is a theme that they'll come back to several times. He's just plowing ahead with with scientific progress, and he actively refuses thinking about to what use the progress will be put. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, And there'll be payoff for this later on. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. 
And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So the pirates are here, in fact, to kidnap Professor Roach and young Simon Hart. They take him along, too. uh, And they are being led by the sea captain and his revolver. And here's where we we notice there's a kind of curious magic to the pirates. They are realized with both menace and whimsy. So they appear kind of frightening. But over on the whimsy ledger, there is, uh, for example, a special effect where like a strongman pirate lifts Simon Hart up in the air, like lifts him up above his head. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and he is so obviously being hoisted up by some other means, maybe a hidden pulley or something that it looks like he's just a balloon in the muscle pirate's yeah. hands. Like there's no attempt at all to maintain the illusion of weight. He just kind of floats up and it adds a kind of subtle physical comedy that I found incredibly pleasing. Uh, like when the man with the newspaper, when the newspaper is shot on the train or, earlier. And there's another gag like this with like a, a pirate throwing a rope that seems to almost magically wrap itself around the professor yeah, yeah. I'm also reminded of the uh, the wind-up machine gun pistol from later on in the, oh, the film. that's yeah. so good. Yeah, he, mm-hmm. when the Count is trying to shoot down a hot air balloon, and he's got—it looks like a musket pistol almost, and yeah. he's trying to fire it, and it's not working, and his, uh, his scientist henchman winds it up for him, and then, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, then it's an automatic weapon. Yeah. <laughs> With no kick. It doesn't seem like it has any kick to it. Right. Uh, so Simon Hart and the Professor are whisked off into the night on uh, on the rowboats where they will be taken as prisoners to destinations unknown. Now, why them? Could it be because of the Professor's interest in chemical reactions and not their practical applications? Uh, anyway, the, the narrator informs us that word of their kidnapping spreads like wildfire and there is soon a worldwide manhunt for them. And this is a, a theme that I want to plant a little seed here because I think this is something that's kind of characteristic of Jules Verne's fiction. And I, I there, there might be something interesting to, to tease out about this. 
in Jules Verne novels, there is often a sense of like there is a situation and word of it spreads around the whole world and everyone learns of this situation or problem and uh, problem solvers around the world all simultaneously turn their attention to solving this problem. Yeah, yeah. Th- this idea, I mean, it's it's almost kind of the same level of one world optimism that you see uh, in, in the, the, the later works of, uh, you know, like, like Star Trek and so forth. You know, this yeah. idea that that the world at large, when unified, is this force of order and progress. Yes, yes. Like not the kind of mundane reality that, oh, if, if two people were like kidnapped from a sanatorium, probably like nothing would happen. Like they just disappear. Uh, mm-hmm. Instead, this is like, OK, now the machine is activated. The whole world is looking for them to get them back. Yeah, yeah. Which, uh, again, it's kind of like that naive, optimistic charm of this uh, this vision of the, the Jules Verne universe. And this leads to a confrontation. So we see a ship, presumably at first the ship on which our heroes are being held prisoner, and the bearded sea captain is leaning over the side. And they, the, the people on this ship are staring down a battleship. With, it's like a naval uh, destroyer with big, long guns trained on them. And there's sort of a bookish-looking man with mutton-chop sideburns and a pipe. And he asks the captain, can they detain us? And the sea captain says, might makes right. Uh, was this phrase in your uh, in your English dub? It was. Yes, I do okay. remember this part. And so the bookish man says, well, I'm going to have to go inform the count. So he does. And we come to learn that this is Count Artigas, the boss, the boss for whom everybody here on the ship works. And uh, so the ship is boarded by a bunch of Marines or French naval seamen. I, I don't know what they are. I think they're supposed to be French, uh, but there's some kind of authorities and they perform a search. They look at a fancy captain's quarters, a, a lonely, empty hold full of rats and a few luggage uh, bags, mm-hmm. but nothing to see here. So they leave. And then we cut to a scene where Count uh, Artigas and the captain are talking and the count is I thought this was so funny, but I'm not sure what it means. The Count is trying on top hat after top hat and in a full-length mirror, just nonstop top hats. And you can see in the background, he has a huge steamer trunk full of more top hats. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I think this has some cinematic payoff in in the finale of the film as well. It does. Uh, So, yeah, we associate him with I think this is supposed to have something to do with the count being vain, but he's not Mm -hmm. just vain. He's he's arrogant and domineering because he also humiliates the grizzled sea captain. He forces him to address him as your excellency when posing a question. Yeah, he's, he's a bad dude. So after this, we have a couple of mysteries raised. So the ship continues to sail ahead. We see it sailing even though its sails are furled. How is that possible? What is driving the ship? And uh, and if Simon Hart and the professor are on board, if they have been kidnapped, how come the Marines did not find them? Well, the answer to these two questions is the same revelation. The ship above the waves is only half of a two-part system. Below, there is a great submarine towing the ship along, and it is down on the submarine where our heroes are kept. So here we get a meeting between Professor Roach and Count Artigas on the submarine, and uh, this is the first scene where we will see a a, a sort of tableau or a display of marine life behind the human drama. So Mm -hmm. they are in the... uh, the, 
I don't know what you call it, the the parlor, the I don't know, the the drawing room or something of the the ship and there's a big display window and we see all the fish and everything outside, uh marvelously animated fishes and octopus. And uh Professor Roach wants to know, hey, why the kidnapping? What what's going on here? And we we learn that basically the Count just wanted to give the professor a research grant, a non-consensual research grant. <laughs> and this is the, the best way he could figure out how to do it. So because of his submarine, he says he is the master of all the oceans, uh, kind of Captain Nemo-ish once again. And he says he has access to untold riches because the sea claims all lost ships including the treasures they carry. And then we look out the window and we see the shipwrecks spread out across the ocean floor, and the ocean is just littered with them, like trees in a forest. Ooh, and I loved this this image. It, it suggests something about um, like the world in which this takes place. There's almost kind of just an infinite past where ships have been sinking for, for millions and millions of years, taking gold mm-hmm. and treasures with them. And now the whole seafloor is nothing but shipwrecks. Yeah, I, I love this. I love the way they, they, they create this world. But also I love this, um, uh, this idea. It's like, hey, you know, all the, there are all these, uh, these shipwrecks out there. And if, if there's a shipwreck, then we can take advantage of it. And of course, the, there's going to be a, an added detail to this arrangement as well. Right. You kind of get the sense that maybe he's already been to all of the pre-existing shipwrecks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, what do you do when funds start running out after that? Well, but you make new shipwrecks. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So the Count wants to help the professor uh, finish his research on the great explosive device from the novel, The, the Fulgurator or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, surely because he, too, is only in- interested in chemical reactions, not practical applications. And uh, so he uh, oh, he also informs the professor he has constructed an underwater city called Back Cup in my translation. I, I didn't know if that was supposed to be a joke. I don't remember what they called it in the the version I watched. Anyway, so while that's going on with the professor, he's being sort of uh, seduced by the promise of of, uh, unlimited funding to continue his research. Simon Hart is in a jail cell on the submarine, and he's not he's not being tricked into thinking that this is a, a benign arrangement. He's like rattling the bars of his cage. He's saying, what right do you have to hold me here? And the count comes in and echoing an earlier phrase by the sea captain, he says, might makes right, sir. Mm-hmm. So this is the point of view of the villains, that it is the, the right of the strong to rule over the weak. Yeah. So we learn the names of some characters we've seen before. The uh, the grizzled sea captain is Captain uh, Spade or Captain Slade. I may have said Slade earlier, but I think it's Spade. Um, and the, the bookish man with sideburns is Mr. Serco, who is going to be working alongside the professor to complete his invention. And coming up here, we get a scene where there's uh, the, the payoff we were saying about, you know, what, what about when you run out of shipwrecks to raid? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the submarine attacks a defenseless merchant ship that has been becalmed in the middle of the sea. So uh, much like 20,000 Leagues, it sort of rams it with the, the pointy bow of the submarine, jabs a hole in the ship's hull and then sinks it. And there's a great preparation scene that keeps intercutting between the pistons pumping in the submarine's engine room and the pirates all sharpening their swords in unison. Yep, yep they're getting ready for the uh, yeah the, the, the impact and the uh, and the, the following raid. This whole sequence is just uh, amazing. A wonderful. So I was thinking at first when they're sharpening their swords, I'm like, okay, so are they going to like board the boat? But no, instead they are preparing 
for a dive walk. The dive walk scene is such a treat. I can just watch this all day. So the the pirates don old-fashioned heavy metal diving helmets, kind of, you know, Bioshock style. Mm-hmm. And uh, they go out and walk along the seafloor to explore the fresh ship wreckage. And there's just sea life of ridiculous dimensions. They're riding these sort of deep sea bicycles, mm-hmm. uh, like these powered craft that they pedal on. And there's this, again, a combination of hand-drawn animation, live action, stop motion. Also, it's all coming together. There are divers versus sharks. There is a couple of the pirates get into a deep sea sword fight over. I think they're trying to take the treasure for themselves. Oh, this is a great part where, yeah, they're the two pirates. They get into a squabble. They start sword fighting, uh, which is just a comedic uh, vision anyway. Um, And then another pirate comes along on one of those little deep sea bicycles. He has a shotgun in his hand, but he gets them to stop by ringing a bicycle bell. Like, just a ching, ching, ching. And they're like, okay, all right. And they cut it out and they get back to work. So all the treasure is removed from the merchant ship. Uh, and by the way, they, they go out of their way to keep the professor in the dark about this. They don't want him realizing that they're sinking ships on purpose. So when the attack is about to begin, Count Artigas is like, oh, hey, professor, would you like to go inside for a snack? So uh, <laughs> they go down to the, I guess, the soundproof snack room. Uh, but whoops, they, they fail to keep him completely in the dark because when the professor comes back out on board, he hears somebody calling for help, and it turns out there was a survivor of the shipwreck. Uh, there is a passenger floating in the water, and they are forced to rescue her. Now, this is a woman named Yana. This is someone who we saw earlier during the, the attack very efficiently releasing her cage to birds. She's, like, opening the doors on multiple cages and letting the birds fly away. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay ebay motors is here for the ride remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease fresh installs and a whole lot of love you transformed a hundred thousand miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own look to your left look to your right it's official no one's got a ride like this there's nothing else that sounds like feels like or looks like the set of wheels in your garage With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... Well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. 
It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do, 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 do. Hey, folks, uh, if anything sounds different, we just had to take a, a break in the recording here. But we're back to continue talking about the movie. Yeah, we're the same people we were before the break. <laughs> OK, um, so picking up where we left off, the next thing is an arrival at a mysterious island. I think this is back cup. Uh, and actually, it turns out this island is a volcano, and it looks like the volcano is active. There is black smoke <laughs> pouring out of the top, but the Count assures uh, the professor the smoke is actually from his factories. Oh, good. Uh, so there is an undersea tunnel, we learn, and through the undersea tunnel, uh, the submarine can access the Count's pirate citadel. So you, you go through the tunnel, and there's like weird fish swimming around, and then you come up, and there is a gloomy lagoon. And uh, Simon Hart's narration says, Artagas's satanic mills spewed clouds of oily black fumes that floated over the caldera like a threat of inevitable eruption. What is it with uh, megalomaniac villains holding up inactive volcanoes? Uh, because Minos did it in uh, the Hercules movie we watched. Oh, that's um, true. Blowfield does it in uh, the James Bond films. Oh, that's Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, certainly, I think you only live twice, right? Yes. Uh, that's mm -hmm. Donald Pleasance's Blofeld. Yeah. Um, that's the one where he's got the piranha pit. Uh, but anyway, also in, in this lagoon, uh, the, the castle of Count Artigas looms over the lagoon, and uh, we, we learn that he is the pirate king of the modern age. So here at the lagoon, we have several arrangements. Simon Hart is kept in a dilapidated shack, while the professor is sent to the laboratory to continue his research. And it seems like they've got Simon Hart sort of as backup because he was the professor's assistant. So it's like, mm -hmm. hey, if the prof can't get it done, we'll get this young whippersnapper on the case and we'll, we'll see if he can, you know, create the super weapon. The shack still looks fabulous, though, because it is rendered in the same style as everything in this film. I love the shack. Yeah. So we see the professor doing science while Artigas and his cronies look on. Uh, there's like a glowing flask and, you know, is bubbling with, with fog coming out of it and so forth. And the professor says that he is going to discover the secret of matter. And then they're like, OK, and then what? 
<laughs> um, meanwhile, Yana from the shipwreck, she is now working in the professor's lab and she asks him about his experiments. And he says there is great energy locked within matter, and he is learning how to release it. And that energy could be used to power lights or heat homes, but ultimately, he says, he's only interested in unlocking the knowledge. How it should be used is, quote, for technicians and others to decide. Uh, mm -hmm. Again, playing with the theme that this, this scientist is disavowing all responsibility to consider practical implications. He only wants the raw knowledge. Meanwhile, they're trying to get Simon Hart to do some research for him as well. They, they want him to do heavier-than-air flying machines, uh, but he refuses. And at first, the he's like, you know, the professor will never do your bidding. He's not going to make a super explosive for you. But then in uh, the narration, he remembers, but, oh, the professor is as trusting as a child. He probably will do it. <laughs> Now, I think this is somewhat this is a difference between the professor in the book facing the flag versus in this movie. I think in the book, the professor is more kind of like bitter and seemingly willing to um, to work along with the, the criminals, at least for the time being. And in the movie, he's presented more as just like not understanding who these people are or what he's working on. Yeah, just so focused on the the scientific achievement and the mystery and the challenge of the thing without thinking really and refusing to really consider the practical applications, especially by a pirate king. Right. So uh, Simon Hart figures out what's going on, that, that the professor is going to build a super weapon obliviously for the pirate king and his band of criminals. It's got to be stopped. So he attempts to warn mankind about this with a note attached to a balloon. And so he like loads up this kind of leather lined flask with a with a, or a handwritten note, attaches it to a hot air. I don't know if it's a hot air balloon. It's a balloon of some kind that he manufactures in his mm -hmm. laboratory. And then he launches it off the island. And then there's this whole word going out sequence that is so beautiful. Like the, the letter somehow reaches some major metropolitan center. Maybe it's supposed to be Paris or something. And then we see it, it just being like transmitted all over the world. <laughs> like a message in the bottle that is addressed to the United Nations and is yes. promptly delivered. <laughs> Again, coming back to that theme of like the world responds, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I've, I've got some thoughts on that in just a minute. But first, uh, th there there is a part where uh, Simon Hart also tries to get in touch with the professor by attaching a note to a toy boat and sending it across the lagoon to Yana so that maybe she'll deliver it to the professor. Uh, meanwhile, there is a movie night scene that is mm. absolutely wonderful. So uh, Count Artigas and his cronies get some film reels delivered to the island, I think. And it's showing, first of all, there's like a newsreel report that that's letting them know, hey, by the way, the whole world knows that you're doing experiments on this island now because somebody warned them. And now they are, they are putting soldiers on top of camels riding roller skates to come get you. <laughs> but funny enough, it doesn't stop with the newsreel. We also get... Uh, a a reel called Sport that is just showing muscle men of the world doing muscle things. Mm -hmm. And so they're, they're just watching various projected reels. And then the projector catches on fire. I'm not quite sure why it happens, but it's very funny. 
Yeah, I found this very amusing. Uh, and again, this has to be intentional um, on, on the part of the filmmaker here, because in this movie, in, in the, the context of this film, all manner of technological dreams are possible and achievable and realized to a very high degree. You know, the, the air is full of flying machines. Space may have flying machines in them and ships are sailing beneath the waves. Um, all this works very well, except for film which is clearly messy, dangerous, and prone to failure. And I think it's, it's interesting and perhaps insightful commentary coming from such an accomplished filmmaker um, uh, like uh, Carol Zaman. Yes, the, I think that subtext may in fact be there. That, that's good. So the next big thing that happens is that Simon Hart gets sent underwater in a diving suit to fix a problem with the cable connecting the island to the outside world. And... Uh, there's a great moment in the scene where he gets like he gets assigned to this job. I guess he volunteers for it, but he gets assigned this job by Mr. Serco, the the scientist who works for Artigas, the guy with the mutton chops and the and the glasses. And uh, in that scene, Mr. Serco is like sitting at a desk in a cave working on some paperwork. Mm-hmm. And there's a part with this giant steam powered like I don't know what you call it, like a crane or a bulldozer type machine hands him a pen. Mm hmm. So the dispatcher said something's wrong with Dynacobble, and uh, so uh, Simon Hart is going to use this in, as an excuse to explore the tunnel leading to the outside world because, of course, he wants to get out of there. Once again, we get a an absolutely fabulous underwater sort of dive walk sequence that, that has a giant octopus or squid attack in it. It's not exactly clear. I want to see squid. There's, there's a big, like, ink squirting scene up at the end of the fight, but it also kind of looks octopusy. I'm not sure what they're going for here, but there is a there is a cephalopod versus diver uh, squabble. Now, is this the scene where he fights it with an axe? I think so, yeah. Yeah, and then when he defeats it, there's like this big ink cloud that billows up from where he uh, chopped it. And this is in the background uh, to the diver. And it's a very, I mean, the whole sequence is amazing, but the scene too is just just excellent. The, the stills you can you can freeze on. Yeah, really good. And there's one little detail I loved here where uh, Simon Hart has to keep track of how much oxygen he has and and it's running out. So he keeps track of it by looking at a watch. But of course, you know, his watch is not going to work underwater. So he has a watch inside a bottle. Yes. With like a cork on top. Uh, But then he does run out of oxygen. So as he's trying to escape, his tank runs low and then he, he becomes very fatigued. And he lays down on the ocean floor as if maybe to die. And we see some visions he's having or something where the fish are transforming into butterflies underneath the waves. Yeah, this is beautiful. Uh, and, and, and very dr- probably even more dreamlike than uh, than everything already is, but of course it's uh, you know a vision. Uh, he's deprived of oxygen, but yeah, it's like the fish come together and they act like they're doing that sort of uh, you know fish kiss kind of a thing, which uh, isn't mm-hmm. actually a kiss, but but then they keep moving into each other until only their tails are visible, and though each tail forms a wing of the butterfly, I'm not sure if that's uh, that is accurately uh, recreating the image in your head, listener, but um, it, you need to see it. It's gorgeous. It's sublime. And Mm -hmm. then uh, out of nowhere, he is brought on board a submarine and saved just when you think he's going to die. So what's going on here? Well, the crew of the submarine inform him. They say, you are among friends, sir. And we see a newspaper with a headline that says, world powers unite to combat invention for destruction. So the world got his note and the world responded. 
And I, I love something about this. And I think it's worth having a, a brief sub discussion about this being indicative of an unusual outlook in, uh, in a lot in film in general, but one that's more uh, characteristic of Jules Verne, as we were saying earlier, I would contrast this with the exact opposite uh, trope that we often see in horror movies, where the outside world is anything but helpful. So if you are in a horror movie and you're running from anything, a werewolf, Jason Voorhees, whatever, and you run into anything representing structures of authority on the outside, you run into a cop. Is that cop going to be able to help you? No. No, obviously not. Never happens. I mean, 99% of the time, it does not happen in a horror movie. No external authorities, institutions, or people in general are going to be of assistance. You are on your own in escaping or defeating the monster. And in fact, if the world finds out about your situation, they will often make things harder for you. They will, they'll say like, oh, you're crazy, you know, or you're lying about what's going on. They'll try to blame you for what's happening. But uh, th- this is a totally different vision. The world hears about this ongoing tragedy and the world responds. They like put the scientific and uh, technological machinery of the entire planet into overdrive to develop submarines to go confront Artigas to stop him from creating a super weapon. Yeah, this is it is interesting to think about this because you can you can almost go like movie to movie. Um, and of course, you can look to to really crucial examples of this uh, trope of the world, outside world and outside authority being unable to help. I guess Psycho being a very influential example of that, mm. uh, that the uh, uh, your your rescuer is not going to be able to save you. Yeah. Um, and then you're going to. And, and so, so it's often like a situation of, OK, this movie is to some degree saying like this part of society is unable to help with this scenario. But then who is the person who can or is there someone who can at all? And then sometimes films kind of buck that uh, a bit like uh, I instantly think of an American werewolf in London, where um, ultimately that's that's a movie that kind of maybe is a little retro in the way you're act- you actually deal with the creature at the end, because I believe the authorities shoot it in yeah. an alley, if I remember correctly, which kind of feels like a throwback in that regard, but also is kind of subverting the idea that a problem of this magnitude is something that we can handle on our own. Well, yes, but also I would say in the cases of horror movies where, like, say, the cops shoot the monster or something, mm-hmm. Almost all of those that I can think of, it's actually kind of a tragic story where the monster is someone that is like actually is the main character or is a character you feel pity for. That's right. I mean, that's exactly the case with American Werewolf. We'll have to keep this in our heads uh, because I'm sure some 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 exceptions and other notable examples will come to mind. I know there's got to be at least some awkward uh, horror film out there from perhaps the, the, the 1950s in which yeah. the, uh, the police show up and nobly <laughs> uh, shoot a, a monster to death the, the, for which you have no feelings or uh, sympathy. Oh, well, no, I mean, it certainly has. I think there are a lot of 50s movies like mm-hmm. that. Didn't Tarantula basically in that way? Oh, yeah. Tarantula basically. Yeah. You don't we don't feel anything for the tarantula. And they were just <laughs> like, yep, the military's here. Clint Eastwood just flew in in a jet. It's Light taken it care of. Yeah. Anyway, so to come back to the plot. So this submarine sent by the world is uh, is attacked. However, there's a submarine battle and the Count's submarine skewers it. it pokes a big hole in the side. And then uh, basically, I think everyone inside perishes except Simon Hart. He survives and he comes mm-hmm. ashore. 
And from there, he climbs a tower inside the lagoon and comes into Yana's window. And so here, Simon Hart and Yana become a team. They, they team up, and Simon reveals to her that the men who saved her life are not actually so nice. Uh, they saved her life when her ship sank, but they were also the very people who sank it. And now they are planning something even more diabolical, an evil crime of global proportions, and only the professor can stop it. So they're going to team up to try to get to the professor to make him not create the, uh, what's it called, the, the fluglerator or whatever it is. In the subtitles of the movie, they were calling it the super gun. There's a super gun filled with the professor's new explosive. I guess maybe mm-hmm. we're to loosely think of this as atomic weaponry. Right, right. And they reveal the new soldiers of the Count's super gun army, which they look quite terrifying. They're wearing these dark suits and gas masks, and they are loaded down with so much technology that they look like Jacob Marley, like wrapped round and round with chains and metal boxes. So when they walk through the rooms, they're kind of clanking and dragging all of this equipment with them. Yeah, they're kind of like Vernzian uh, stormtroopers or something. Yeah. And uh, so what, what's going to happen here? Well, uh, Simon Hart and Yana have an idea. They, they do a classic James Bond-style uniform swipe. So they mm-hmm. beat up a couple of these Super Gun Army soldiers. They steal their outfits, and they use that to sneak on board the, uh, the Count's uh, air balloon, which I think the hot air balloon was supposed to be used to drop bombs on the ships that are coming to rescue them. I think that's right, yes. Anyway, everything comes down to a big fight at the island. The warships are incoming. The world is coming to the rescue. The Count's forces are getting ready to attack via super gun and via the the hot air balloon. But, of course, our heroes steal the hot air balloon. Um, In the battle, this is the scene where the Count is shooting at the hot air balloon with, like, a a musket (laughs) pistol that is also a wind-up machine gun. Yes, yes, that was fabulous. And at the very last, the professor realizes what is happening. He comes to his senses and he's like, oh, the people I'm working for are the bad guys. And so he (laughs) sabotages his own invention by causing an explosive shell to fall off a cliff. It detonates. It destroys the entire island, including himself, the Count, all of the Count's cronies and his armies. And uh, and, uh, Simon Hart and Yana escape in the hot air balloon. And they sort of float off, almost float into the sun. Uh, Oh, and one of the last things we get when the island explodes is we see a top hat going sky high. Nice. Yeah. The top hat came back. Um, this this whole scene with the professor having a change of heart and realizing, you know, what he has wrought and, and to a certain degree kind of like being like, oops, uh, I almost became death to destroy a world. So maybe I shouldn't do that. Yeah. Um, and trying to decide to take a step backwards. Um, it, it's really well executed, though. Like yes. it's, it's nicely framed and shot with him approaching the weapon, climbing upon the weapon, and then, you know, knocks this, uh, uh, you know, atomic shell off and lets it roll down to to uh, destroy everything. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's really it's really well done. It's a dramatic moment um, that uh, it, it's easy. That's one of the, the things that so, works so that's so impressive about this film is that it can be so you know, kind of silly and dreamlike and whimsical in so many of its uh, visuals. And yet it still can deliver some really great moments that have a, a sense of drama and spectacle to them, like this moment, the, the slaying of the squid and, and other moments throughout the film. Absolutely. And I also love the the professor's realization at the end. 
connecting to the theme of what he's been talking about the entire time with the the knowledge versus the practical application. I think the, his final moment is he he realizes the only good practical application of his invention is to destroy itself, is to yeah. erase itself from existence so it cannot be used. Yeah. And then, like you say, they, they balloon off into the sun, like to the point where my son walked in for the last 10 minutes of this film when I was watching it yesterday. And he's like, oh, now they're going into the sun. And <laughs> um, maybe he's been exposed to too much MST. But uh, I, I, was, I was like, no, no, don't, don't say that. Don't ruin the, the nice moment. But then I'm like, yeah, it does kind of look like they're, they're going into the sun. Well, that that is what it looks like. But I don't know. I kind of like that. They're, I mean, it, it symbolically, yeah, the idea is that they are going into the light yeah um, yeah into into the future into a, a better tomorrow it's a lot like the ending of congo actually <laughs> yes except there's there's a well no no the gorilla wasn't on board the the, the, the balloon in congo either so yeah no, the gorilla stays behind to right uh, yeah but they don't have ernie hudson that's really the only difference if this film had ernie hudson in it it would basically be identical god i love ernie yeah he's so good okay one difference that I was reading about between Invention for Destruction, the movie, and the novel Facing the Flag, they both have a professor who creates a super weapon, is kidnapped by a pirate king, and, you know, goes through all this. But uh, apparently in the end of the novel Facing the Flag, the professor initially allows his super gun, uh, the, the fulgurator or whatever, to be used against a, a British warship that is coming to the rescue of, of his associates. And so, yeah, they're, they're turning the weapon on the British and he's like, rock. But when he sees a French warship approaching and sees the French flag, his sense of patriotism, because he is French, makes him makes him question his actions. And then he is overcome with guilt. And he says, I can't turn this on a French ship. And uh, so then he he, I guess, destroys his own creation or something like that, turns against he, he no longer cooperates in some way. Um and I, I think that is a that is a far less grand and less beautiful <laughs> yeah. ending. That I like the change they made for the for the movie. Yeah, I think so. I think it ultimately is a, is a lot more compelling and relatable because we have a have an individual who is kind of oblivious to the impact of what they're doing or how they view the world. And then there is a revelation that like, no, no, this, the, what, what I'm doing does matter. What I'm not doing does matter. Yeah. And I feel like that's something that, that even the average person can relate to, you know, waking up to your own role in something or place in something or, or, you know, or to realize that, that not having, having an opinion and not acting uh, that inaction is like making a choice. Yeah, yeah. So in the end, I'd say Invention for Destruction, one of my favorite movies we've done, uh, a beautiful, uh, truly a work of art, and surprisingly profound for a little sci-fi adventure story. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, it's it's kind of like, like I was telling you before we recorded, sometimes you view a film and you feel like it's just a purely additive experience. Like, it's great. I've seen another film that was a lot of fun or very enjoyable, very admirable, you know, even a great film. Uh, this is the kind of film where once you see it, you realize you're not just, it's not just additive. You're filling in something that was missing in your, your um, appreciation of cinema. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, three stars all the way. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I don't, I don't get stars. Uh, it's almost as good as laser blast. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, again, high, highly recommend this one. 
All right, we're going to go ahead and close uh, the books here on Invention for Destruction, but we'd love to hear from everyone out there if you have thoughts on this film, if you have a, if you have a history with this film, uh, etc. cetera, uh, write in. In the meantime, if you want to keep track of all the other films, the, the 100 other films that we've covered on Weird House Cinema, you can find them all at our Letterboxd page. That's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D dot com. We have a profile there. It's Weird House. And if you go there, you'll find a list of all these films with, uh, with links to where you can listen to the episodes if you haven't listened to the episode already. Huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, uh, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.